Our God, we bow our heads to ask for your help now. And we think not just of us here, but for all those in our city, our state, our country, around the world who gather under your word. We pray that wherever it is taught, that it would be done so faithfully. Wherever it is heard, it would be done so faithfully. And even us here, help us to believe. The good news you have for us is so true and almost too good to be true. So help us. Help us to believe what you have said about yourself. And because of what you've done, help us to believe what you've said about us as well. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first story in the Bible is a story that's familiar to many of us. So if you open to page one of the Bible, it would start with God. In the beginning, there's God, and you have this self-existent, uncreated, eternal God. And this God creates a place, a majestic place. He puts mountains and trees and rivers and hills, a beautiful place. And it is that way so that it can reflect that he is majestic and he is beautiful. And the pinnacle of all that this God made are human beings. These human beings are created to share his glory. They are given his authority. They're charged to rule and have dominion over this place. And they're to be connected to each other and connected to him. But if you've read the story, you know that by page three of the story, these human beings, this first couple, this man and this woman, they rebel against God. They do what God has told them not to do. And so for the first time ever... They feel something. They feel guilt. They feel guilt because, in fact, that is what they are. They are guilty. They have done what is wrong. And in some ways, the rest of the Bible, everything from page 3 onwards, is the report of how God dealt with that guilt, of how God remedied the problem of guilt. Now, we we get guilt. We understand guilt. We understand the currency and the words associated with guilt. We understand words like right and wrong. We understand words like guilt and innocence and justice and injustice. We're familiar with the world of courtrooms and law and legalities and judges and juries. That world makes sense to us in our culture. And so, when we speak of the Christian faith, when we talk of the gospel, the good news, one of the words that's most precious to us is the word justification. It's a Bible word, and it means that God declares us to be righteous. The scene would almost be we're standing in a courtroom. God is the one behind the bench with the robes and a gavel in his hand. And God hammers down that gavel and declares us not only not guilty but righteous. And we walk out, though we were guilty, innocent and free because of justification. But if you go back to the story, while all of that is right and true, if you go back to the story, you'll notice there's something else that appears in the garden as well. That what they feel after they had done wrong is not just guilt. They feel something else as well. They feel shame. In the garden, the problem they're dealing with, the human problem, isn't just a problem of guilt, but it's also a problem of shame. This week, I read three-fourths of a book called Shame Interrupted. It was a thick book, so I couldn't finish it. I would highly encourage it to any of you who are interested in this, or if any of what we talk about today is relevant or interesting to you, I would encourage you to read this. It's Shame Interrupted by Ed Welsh, and Welsh noticed and notes that this idea of shame 
and its counterpart of honor, these things show up in the Bible right at the beginning. Meaning it's not a later development. It's not a thread that the Bible decides we need to say something about this. But right from the start, there it is. It's almost like one person has said that shame and guilt, guilt and shame are like Siamese twins. They're not the same, but they're joined together and they come out at the same moment in the garden. Right from the start, you deal in the Bible with shame and not being ashamed and honor. For example, after the creation is done, Genesis 2 verse 25 says, everything has been made, the man and woman has been made, and then it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not, what? They were not ashamed. The man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. You imagine that for a moment. Just let that sit in your mind for a moment. Imagine that the first human beings felt absolutely no shame. Not a hint of it. That they could literally walk around naked and be totally unashamed. They could be totally seen and be unashamed. Why? Because there was nothing about you you needed to hide. And not even just physically. That there was nothing about you, nothing about your story, nothing about your past, nothing about your person that anyone could know or anyone could discover that would be a problem to you. You felt no shame. You could be utterly transparent. You wouldn't mind being seen for who you were. Someone could look at you, and not just physically, but look down all the way to the bottom of who you were, and you had no fear. They could know everything there is to know about you, and there was no worry, because there was no risk of you being rejected, no risk of you being vulnerable or exposed or ridiculed or mocked. In the beginning, you could be completely, utterly, totally known, and yet still be completely, totally, utterly loved. That's how it was. But then they do what is dishonorable. And the moment they do, they suddenly feel exposed. And they suddenly feel vulnerable. And they suddenly feel shame. In fact, if you've read the story on page three, you know that their immediate response is to grab some leaves off of a fig tree and sew it together to somehow hide to somehow cover themselves, to somehow no longer be seen. And now, isn't it something that that which they once enjoyed becomes their worst nightmare? Their greatest fear is now to be seen. Their worst nightmare is to be completely known, to be found out, to be exposed. Now, they don't want to be completely known, and they don't want to be completely seen by God or by each other. Now God seeing and knowing or people seeing and knowing become a huge threat to them. Which means that their problem in the garden is not just that they've broken God's law. That's guilt. Their problem is that they can't bear to look him in the face. And they can't bear to have him look them in the face. That's shame. It's not just that they're guilty. It's not just that the words attached to them are now right and wrong, guilt and innocence, justice or injustice. Now there's a whole set of words attached to them. Words like naked. Words like ashamed. Words like unacceptable, rejected, 
cast out. That's what happens. They're driven out. And if you went to the other side of the planet, the cultures on the other side of the planet would tell us to be cast out, to be cut off from your community, to be thrown away from your people, to be put out from your family is the worst nightmare that could ever happen. This is what happens in the garden. It's almost as if guilt is what I feel for what I do. Shame goes deeper than that. Guilt feels like I did wrong. Shame feels like I am wrong. It cuts all the way down deep. In fact, Ed Welsh in his book defines it this way. Shape is, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did or something done to you or something associated with you, you feel exposed and humiliated. And for those of us who struggle with shame and those of us who live in shame, you know that Ed Welsh's definition hits it right head on. For those of us who struggle with shame, those of us who live in shame, we know that we have companions. We've made companions out of words like dirty and filthy and exposed and dishonorable and disgusting and disgraced. And as much as we hate those words, they're not out there. They're in here. They're attached to us to the point that we don't almost even know how to tease out who we are and who shame is. It feels like the same thing. And like those first human beings, we do something. We have to figure out a way to deal with our shame, and so we try to fix it. We, we sew our own fig leaves together. We try, some of us, to hide. Our worst nightmare is to be seen, to be known. So we keep at arm's length, lest anyone should see all the way to the bottom and see our shame and be rejecting, and so we hide or we cover up. Some of us, we know we've ruined our name, and so the rest of our life's work is to make a name for ourselves. If we've ruined our name, we're going to do everything we can to make a name. And so if it's good grades or a good job or good wealth, whatever it is, we're not going to risk that again. We will make a name for ourselves. For others of us, we ignore it. We tell ourselves that our problem is with self-esteem or something like that. We find some other solution. For some of us, we resign and accept it. Shame is a horrible mate, and yet it lives in our bed with us. We can't get rid of it no matter how much we hate it, and we resign to accept it that there's nothing else for our story but shame. In studying this week, here's what I've learned, friends, and I'm learning and believing it with you. God has something better for us. And the Bible would tell us, in some ways, it would be fair to say that everything from page three on is the story of how God dealt with shame how he remedied the problem of shame. Because if you read page four and following, if you read, in fact, page three and following, the rest of the story is a story of a God who pursues those who are outcasts. It's a story of a God who goes after those who are rejected, who reclaims those who are disowned, who offers grace to those who are disgraced, who comes to those who are dirty and unclean and cleanses them who comes to those who are profane and unholy and consecrates them. It's a God who comes to those who have shame, and he gives acceptance. Even better, he gives honor. This is what the scriptures say. In fact, if Ed Welsh is right, he says, 
that the Bible speaks of God dealing with shame almost ten times more than it talks about him dealing with guilt. If nothing else, that means this word of God. He has much to say on this for us. It means there is good news for those of us who live with shame. And this morning, here's that good news. Jesus took our shame and gives us honor. Jesus took our shame and gives us honor. This is what we're fighting to believe today. The reason we're talking about this is because we're in Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 32. So if you have a Bible, turn it open there. If you don't, there's a black one in the seat back in front of you, page 852. Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 32. That's the passage we're going to be walking through. Now, while you turn there, let me tell you this. There's lots of other places in the Bible we could have turned to this morning. Because there are lots of places in the Bible where God comes to those who are living in shame, where God comes to those who are outcasts, where God comes to those who are living in disgrace or unclean, where he comes to exchange all of that for honor. There's lots of places in the Bible we could go. In fact, you see it in stories all over the place, even stories in the Old Testament, the first half of our Bible, where simple things like God chooses the younger sibling in the family rather than the older. Simple things where those who shouldn't have honor suddenly get honor. Those simple reversals in the Bible, in that day, in that culture, shouted, God is doing something here. On this side of the planet, maybe things like that doesn't even make sense to us. But but though I was born and raised in America, my parents come from India. So so I have the best of both East and West, which means I I have the best combination of guilt and shame. I'm messed up to the core because I get both of it, right? But on the Eastern side, they would understand this world of older and younger. I'll give you an example. Just the day before yesterday, I was at Binu's house. While we were sitting there, there were six of us sitting there, Binu's dad walked in. We all said hello, and then Binu's dad went upstairs. And then I turned to everybody and I said, I feel so bad because I didn't stand up. Now, in the culture I grew up in, when an older person comes into the room, the way you show honor, the way you show respect is you stand up. I sat down like a young punk while this older man came in. I felt that. And to a culture like that, the Bible comes and gives you these stories of the younger sibling being raised over all the older ones. That culture would have immediately known, what what is this God doing? What is this God like? There's stories like that all over the scriptures. In the narratives, for example, you get this guy, Joseph. In Genesis, he's in a jail cell. By the end of his story, he is second in command, highest in the land. What is that? That's a man with shame now being lifted up and exalted and given great honor. You read the story of Ruth and Naomi. Ruth and Naomi in that day were two women on the outskirts of society. They were poor. They were widowed. They were marginalized. They were nothing. They were one of them barren. They had no men attached to them to give them significance or standing. What they should have been were props on the side of the story. But Ruth is the story of what? How God takes these two props and pulls them all the way into center stage and makes them the grandmothers of Israel's most famous king, David himself, so that you can't even read the genealogy of Jesus without reading their names. What's he doing? He's taking from shame and giving honor. And and if you get to the New Testament, 
If you read the life and stories of Jesus, if you read his ministry, what do you see? He goes to Samaria, a rejected place, and sits at a well, talks to a woman, a rejected woman. I mean, in her day, she had gone through five husbands and now was living with a man who was not her husband. Everybody knew who she was. In fact, she went to the well precisely when other women wouldn't be there to make sure she wasn't seen. Well, Jesus goes to her, and Jesus starts talking, and the conversation is polite and fine enough until it comes to the topic of her husband. And then she retreats. But when she retreats, Jesus presses in, almost as if to say, I know everything about you there is to know. And I knew it before the conversation started. And I still came to talk to you. In fact, in that story, he not only talks to her, he asks her for help. Could you give me water? Do you know what it is for a shamed person to have someone of honor, not just accept them, but to ask them for help? What, what kind of acceptance is that? And this woman goes on to be a missionary to Samaria. I mean, all the stories. Mark told us, a leper came to him, meaning a man who has to cry out unclean as he walks through the crowds. And Jesus didn't just clean him. He didn't just say, be healed, like he did to other people. He came and touched an untouchable man. Why? Because all the stories are this good news of God coming to those who are shamed, coming to those who are outcast, coming to those who are unclean, defiled, disgraced, and changing. There's good news for those who have shame. But the climax of all of that, all that work that God was doing, climaxes here in Mark 15. Because in verse 16 to 32, I think if there's one thing Mark wants us to see from this, it's that Jesus experienced incomparable shame. In this passage, he is humiliated and reviled and mocked and exposed for us. And Mark would add, and it's done by everyone in the story. It starts with the soldiers. Let me read for you the first chunk about them. This starts at verse 16. It says, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews, and they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means a place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Let's stop there for a second. Mark, Mark doesn't give us vivid detail of the physical suffering of Jesus. Meaning, when Mark writes this story, if you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ movie, the Passion of the Christ goes into vivid detail of the physical suffering. Now, you can be sure, though he doesn't mention it, all of Mark's original readers would have known well what a crucifixion was. 
They, they would have known that. They wouldn't have needed explained. They wouldn't have needed a movie to show them. They would have known what it was. But Mark is very subdued when it comes to the physical suffering of Jesus. He simply says, and they scourged him. Simply says, and they crucified him. Doesn't go into any detail about the horror of what that was. But whereas he is silent and subdued on the physical suffering of Jesus, do you notice how vivid the detail is in terms of how Jesus is mocked, how he is humiliated, how he is shamed? Mark wants you to see here is the one honorable person. The one person, if you looked him through all the way down to the bottom, you would find a crystal clear pool. There wouldn't be a hint of darkness or shadow. The one person who is glorious and beautiful and majestic, the one person Mark had told us went up a mountain in Mark 9 and for a moment peeled back his glory and you were amazed by who you saw. This honorable, beautiful, glorious one. Do you see how he takes shame? He tells us that having been condemned by the religious leaders, the Jewish people, and the political leaders, the Roman people, now he's handed over to the soldiers. These blue-collar soldiers are now to execute the judgment of these leaders. And so, Mark tells us, they call together the whole battalion. Now, battalion was anywhere up to 600 soldiers. The point would have been hundreds of soldiers gather into the courtyard. They gather into the headquarters of the governor. And now this show is not going to be in front of a few random soldiers. A battalion of men are there. Now you can imagine these soldiers, they'd much rather be in Rome. But they're on another tour in Israel. And they've got to put down riots and deal with troublemakers. They wish they were back in Rome. They have no respect for these Jewish people or their customs or their religions or their practices. But they're here separated from their families. And now they've got their hands on one of the troublemakers. And they're going to let him have it. A battalion gathers. And the soldiers here, the charge against this man is he claims to be the king of the Jews. And that's what they'll springboard off to put on this twisted show. King of the Jews, are you? Okay, we'll start with that. When you think of a king, what do you think of? When you think of a king, a king needs a robe on his back. When you think of a king, you, you know a king needs a crown on his head. When you think of a king, a king needs a scepter in his hand. Those will be the ingredients they'll use to put on a mocking coronation, a sarcastic enthronement for the king of the Jews. So they take Jesus, and now in front of hundreds of them, the text tells us they publicly strip him. You imagine that. They take Jesus in front of all these men, in front of all these soldiers, and they publicly strip him. They grab a purple cloak, maybe some soldier's cape and put it on his back. They twist together a crown of thorns and they press it down onto his brow. They grab a reed, a staff, and they don't put it in his hand. They strike his head. And now this Jesus, who had been scourged, and you think passion of the Christ, who has, whose back is now ribbons, who is so weak that verse 21 says he can't even carry his own cross, and so they grab a passerby to carry it for him. This publicly humiliated, mocked, stripped Jesus. 
this bleeding Jesus, too weak to carry his own cross, they now kneel down before him. And then the text says, they cover his face with their spit. I mean, you imagine God's face, and they cover the face of God with their spit. And they get on their knees, and they pay homage, and they salute, Hail, King of the Jews. Every king needs a throne, a throne where he will be lifted up and exalted. For this Jesus, that will be a wooden cross. So they'll have a cross on which he will be lifted high and exalted. And so when they get to the place called Golgotha, they strip him down to nothing. This modest man in front of the watching crowds stripped down to nothing, and they crucify him with a sign over his head, a sarcastic sign by the Romans that says, King of the Jews. It's almost Rome's way of saying, it's Rome's sarcasm, it's Rome's warning to any passerby, any faithful zealot or Jew passing by with any ideas of grandeur. It's almost Rome's way of saying, you see this bleeding, spit-covered, humiliated, naked vermin of a man? This is what we do to so-called kings of Jews. Mark tells us it's not just the soldiers, though. Verse 27, And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Jesus is hung between two criminals, one on his right, one on his left. When you read that, it's almost like you remember back, you flash back to, I think it was chapter 10, where two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, they came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, when you come into your glory, can we be at your right and the other be at your left? It's almost like you want to ask, where are you, James? Where are you, John? Is this the glory you had in mind when you asked? Is this the honor you envisioned when you proudly said, no matter what, we're with you as long as you give us a spot on your right and on your left? And hanging there, people pass by. Maybe Jewish pilgrims who had come into the holy city for Passover. And they begin to wag their heads at this so-called Messiah. They scoff at him. They say, didn't you say you had such power and might that you could destroy our temple and you'd rebuild it in three days? Well, if you're so mighty, why don't you save yourself and come down from that cross? Mark would have us know it's not just the Roman soldiers. And it's not just Jewish pilgrims who pass by. Verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. It's not just the passers-by, the commoners. The chief priests jump in, and you'd imagine they were salivating for this moment. As far back as Mark chapter 3, they had plotted this. As far back as Mark 3, they were waiting and seeking for a way to destroy him. And now here he was, on this cross. And so they call out, 
He can't even save himself. Some deliverer this was going to be, some rescuer, some anointed one, some Messiah. Tell me, what kind of Messiah, what kind of deliverer for God's people are you going to be if you can't even deliver yourself? How are you going to rescue the people if you can't rescue yourself? What manner of Savior doesn't save even himself? You're going to deliver us from the Romans while you're pinned to a Roman cross? I mean, that's their question. What kind of hero would King David have been if Goliath beat him? How, how great of a savior or messiah would that have been? You saved others. You can't even save yourself. So, Messiah, King of Israel, Christ, David, why don't you come down from this cross? And then we will gladly believe you. Mark tells us even the criminals joined in. Even the man on the right and the left. I mean, you think of that. They were suffering the same shame on the cross. In Jerusalem that day, there was no one lower than these three men on a cross. And yet, even among these three, the two of them somehow found a way to gang up so that Jesus was left in a category even lower than them. So that even... On the cross, he was the worst of the worst. He was the lowest of the low. Even on the cross, he was an outcast and the companion of the criminals. Friends, do, do you see what Mark is saying? My soul, do I see what Mark is saying? Do you hear the words he has piled into these verses? Verse 20, that they mocked him and stripped him. Verse 29, that they derided him and wagged their heads at him. Verse 31, that they mocked him to one another. Verse 32, they reviled him. And then Mark would say, and do you see who's doing this? The answer would be everyone. Everyone. The religious folks in the story and the non-religious folks in the story. The leaders and the commoners. The respectable people of society and the scum and criminals of society. In fact, in that day, there was two categories of people. You had Jews and non-Jews called Gentiles. And that's the whole world. And in this story, you've got the Jewish people and the Roman soldiers, the Gentiles. Everyone, the story is saying. Everyone. Everyone. And friends, you're included. I'm included. We're in the story. If you find yourself in the story, you'd go, where am I? You're in the story. This is why we sing hymns. We sing, how deep the Father's love. When we sing it, we sing. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulder. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Because in the story am I and you. Wagging our heads, deriding, mocking, reviling. Mark says he experienced incomparable shame. But, friends, don't stop there. Because what God is doing in this scene, this passage is filled with wonderful ironies. Wonderful twists. The irony that though nobody in the passage knew it, he is the king of the Jews. The irony that in that moment, he is being enthroned. You are seeing his glory. 
It is being displayed. And in fact, the irony that for what he is doing in that moment, he will receive worship. He will get homage. He will be saluted. He will be hailed. His name will be exalted. The irony that as his name is being dragged in the mud, at that very moment, for that very thing, he is receiving at that moment the name above all names by which every knee will bow and every tongue will not spit but confess that Jesus Christ is not just King but Lord of all. And the irony of all ironies is that the chief priests and the scribes are right. The irony of ironies is they're right. He can't save himself because he is saving others. The irony of ironies is that, in fact, it's by not saving himself that he is able to save others. This is the cross. In fact, let me give you an illustration. I, I read about this movie. I haven't seen it myself, but it was a wonderful picture, a wonderful illustration of this very thing. In the 1930s, there was this movie made called Angels with Dirty Faces. In the movie, the, the main character is this very well-known criminal, this very popular, very glorified criminal named Rocky Sullivan, who is a hero to all the juvenile delinquents in the city. They love Rocky. They adore Rocky. They want to follow in Rocky's footsteps. Rocky is tough and gruff, and they want to be just like him. Well, Rocky gets caught, and Rocky is about to be executed, put on the electric chair. The day before his execution, a childhood friend of his, a man named Jerry, who now is a priest, comes to see Rocky. And he, this priest, makes a request to Rocky. He tells Rocky... I have to ask you to do something. I need you to disgrace yourself. I need you to go down in, in shame. I need you to go down that way so that all these kids who look up to you can live. I, I need you to go out bad so that these kids can not end up like you in this spot. He says to him, I want you to let them down. You've been a hero to all these kids. If you remain high in their eyes, they'll all die. Rocky hears this. He can't believe what he's hearing. In fact, this is what he says back. He says, you're asking me to pull an act, to turn yellow so that those kids will think that I'm no good. You're asking me to throw away the only thing I've got left. You're asking me to crawl on my belly, the last thing I'll do in life. And he says, nothing doing, priest. You're asking too much. You want to save those kids? you got to think of some other way. Here's what the priest is saying. Rocky, it's either you or them. Essentially, if you stay honored and glorified, then they will go down to death. But if you're willing to give up your name, your reputation, how people see you, view you, if you'll go down in shame, then they can be saved. The morning of the execution comes. And in the scene, Rocky comes out of his jail cell as tough and gruff as ever. But the moment he comes to the door of the chamber, all of a sudden he starts to scream. He starts to squeal. He starts to cry. He, he puts on these words. He says, I don't want to die. Oh, please don't put me to death. I'm going to burn in hell. Please let me go. Please have mercy. Please don't kill me. So much so that in the next scene, the newspapers report of Rocky's execution. And they tell the story of how Rocky squealed, how he screamed, how he cried. And it ends with the simple line that despite all his former heroics, 
Rocky Sullivan died a coward. There it is. Rocky gives up his glory and takes on shame so that others might be saved. And Mark would say to us, the chief priests are right. It's either him or us, but it can't be both. And if Jesus keeps his glory, then we stay in shame. If Jesus keeps his name and reputation and is high and exalted, then we stay in shame. But if Jesus gives it all up, if they let him drag him and his name through the mud, if he bears our shame, then we can have glory. Then we can have honor. The good news, your soul has to fight to believe, and it's a fight to believe it, is that this exchange really happened on the cross. It's not happening. If you've trusted in Christ, it's happened. We come to the cross defiled, dirty, because of what we've done, because of what has been done to us, because of what we've been associated with. This is how we come. But on the cross, he takes that. And we walk away clean. The cross says, we come to the cross disgraced. He takes that and gives us grace. The cross says, we come to the cross outcast, cut off from the community, cut off from our people, abandoned. He takes that. He becomes the son thrown out of the home. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we get adopted, brought all the way in. We come to the cross with a ruined name. He takes that. He takes our reputation. And he gives us a new name. Friend, over every other label you think of yourself, if you know Christ, your name is Christian. That's a new name given to you. A new reputation, not your own, given to you from him, we come with shame. He takes that and gives us honor. The good news is Jesus took our shame to give us honor. And I want you to pay attention. Give it to us. Not help you to earn honor. We can't earn honor. We can't earn honor. If you're trying to earn honor, you're still trusting in yourself. I have to be desperate enough to go, I'm never going to work my way out of this. I got to receive honor because I can't earn it and the good news is you are given honor it's bestowed on you you didn't do anything to earn it he traded places with you and took your shame to give you honor that's the way it works it's like a it's like a birthday party yesterday I went to a birthday party what happens on a birthday party when it's your birthday you are treated special you are treated with all eyes looking at you. There's a public show of how important you are. You are honored on your birthday. And if you think about it, for what? What did you do for being born? And you didn't even do that. You didn't do anything for this. And yet, the way it works is you are honored, though you did nothing to earn it. And Christianity would say, you have to get used to that. That's the way it works. You are honored, though you have not done anything to merit it. You get a new identity, though you haven't earned it. It's bestowed upon you. It's given to you. And the desperate will take it. The proud will still work for it. 
So he gives grace to those who are humble. This is the way Christianity works. It's sort of like the prodigal son story. You remember the story Jesus told two boys, one did everything right. One left his father, took his money, and spent it on wine and women and all the others in total wickedness. He's literally living with the most unclean of animals for them, the pigs. From a pigsty, living like a pig, he comes. You imagine that walk home. You imagine, I imagine in my head, that walk home is with his head down. Totally with shame. Out of options, so desperate that he has to come back home. He's memorized his speech with his head down. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Please accept me as your servant. But what happens? The father will not let him finish his speech. And he will not let him sulk quietly into the servant's quarters. If you're a shamed person, there's nothing you want less than to be seen. You want to secretly sneak into the servants' quarters. I don't want to live in the pigsty, but just let me live with the servants and don't let anyone, just let me quietly, secretly sneak in. But in Christianity, that will not be allowed. No one goes into the kingdom sneaking in. Because the father says what? He calls all the attention in the world to it. He is going to publicly honor this boy. Calls his servants and says, grab a robe and put it on my son's back. And grab a ring and put it on my son's hand. And grab sandals and put it on my son's feet. And now that he is dressed so that you can all see him, go kill the cow because we are going to have a party to celebrate my son. This is my boy. You imagine this father is proud to call this boy his son. He is not ashamed no matter who in the world sees it. And the scriptures would say, in our father's home is a father who is delighted to have us, and there's an elder brother in our father's home. Hebrews tells us Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. We have a sibling and a father who is delighted to count us his family. Not earned honor, bestowed honor. Friends, the path out of shame. And I want to tell you, it's a path. I don't think it happens in one giant step. I think it's a lot of small steps. Because you have enemies like the world, your own flesh, and the devil, who is more than ready to sting you and whip you with shame at every turn, so you make one step of progress, you take one step back. You take two steps of progress and one back. The path out of shame is to associate and identify with Jesus, to receive from him bestowed honor. It's to be counted with him. Listen, we, we know about this. We know that honor comes with who we're associated with. Why do people name drop? Why do the name droppers drop names? They do so because if you hear this honored celebrity or this famous person and I'm associated with him by that very association my status goes up that's why people drop names you were associated with a disgusting shameful serpent but now but now it's different it's like when you were in high school even if you were a nerd if the most popular kid in high school approved of you your social status went up well the gospel says the most honorable person in the universe, the cool of cool, 
the highest and most beautiful and most glorious person says to you and to the whole world, she's with me. He's with me. He's mine. You have someone who comes to you, Jesus Christ, who says to you, I have seen you to the bottom. I know everything there is to know about you. There is nothing about you or your story that I'm going to discover and be shocked by. Nothing about you that I don't know. No news I'm going to ever discover. I know everything there is about you. In fact, I knew it before I came to you. And I still have come to you. And I want a relationship with you. And I want to be yours and I want you to be mine. This is the gospel. Do you not know Jesus Christ? Come to him. Do you know Jesus Christ? Come to him. This is the good news for us who live with shame. Jesus took our shame and gives us honor. God give grace to believe. Let's pray together.